0: Hello and welcome to this episode of the Ritman Grace Podcast. We hope that it will encourage you as you seek to follow God and grow in your faith. If you would like to know more about our church, you can check us out at www.RitmanGrace.org or feel free to email us at RitmanGBC at AOL.com. But for right now, let's get into today's message. Well, good morning and thanks for uh, joining us in a new venue for us today. Our tech team did a phenomenal job of setting all this up so that uh, we'd be able to accommodate more people because actually next Sunday, we're hoping to regather as a church. And if you feel healthy and comfortable, you're welcome to join us next Sunday morning at 10.30 here in our lower auditorium. And uh it really is quite a sight to see here what they've done and all the work that has happened. If you're like me, well, you're probably not. But if you were, uh the last several weeks have been totally different. That's normal. But <clears throat> for me personally, there's I've done something, and I think I've pretty much, it's been since my teen years that I've done this, and that is to watch the evening news. I don't normally get to do that. And recently, I've been able to do that a little bit more than I ever did before. And I've learned some things, made some observations. Typically, the evening news is 28 minutes of really bad news, really bad news. And then two minutes of feel good, happy, good news, which I really like that part a lot better. But... Every time I've been watching this, not every time, but a lot of times when i have been watching, my mind has gone to Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. <clears throat> I think about that verse a lot. And especially this week, I think it's been illustrated a lot. And that is uh, Jeremiah was told that by God that the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? That who can understand it brings the question of why do we do what we do? So often we don't do what we think we should and we do do what we don't think we should. The Apostle Paul talked about that. I think it's uh, it's a saying that people have said for years, and that is two wrongs don't make a right. Well, 1,400 wrongs don't make a right either. Um, we seem to forget that not only is the heart wicked beyond what we can understand, but God went on to say a little bit more to Jeremiah in the next verse, Jeremiah 17:10. He says, I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward a man according to what his deeds deserve. Now, for a lot of people, that's bad news. That's really bad news. God searches the heart, He knows who we are, and He will. Reward, repay according to what they deserve. I think one thing that most of us are crying out for today is we want our world to be a better place. We want to have a better world. And even if somebody does not believe in God, does not follow Christ as Savior, I think they would agree that if everybody lived by this one verse, things would get better. The verse I'm thinking about comes from a passage I really love. And that's in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31. It says this, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Now, do you agree with me? I think you have to. That if our country, if our culture would practice that, Things would be a whole lot better. Get rid of those things, the bitterness, the rage, the anger, the brawling, the slander, malice. Get rid of it. For those who are believers in Christ, they want to go a step further and do what verse 32 says in Ephesians 4, and that is be kind and compassionate with one another. With one another, red and yellow, black and white. They're precious in his sight with everybody, forgiving each other. Why? Why should I forgive somebody? Because just as in Christ, God forgave you. What has God forgiven you? He's forgiven you everything, everything in Christ. When we're in Christ, you are totally clean, pure, redeemed, bought completely. And God's done that for us. And we're to do that for others. Our world is one that uh, looks for blame looks for excuses, and we're going to look today at the background, the family background of Joseph, and we're doing that not to find excuses, but to give explanations. And I hope that we'll see, ultimately, the the wonderful grace of God and how he can overcome so much in someone's life, in your life. The story of Joseph is a story of a very dysfunctional family. Chances are you, you might see yourself somewhere in his story. But it's also a story about overcoming family dysfunction. That can be done. It can. Now, I do need to throw in a couple of cautions here. For one, today, in the amount of time we have, I'm going to try to cover about 16, 17 chapters of Scripture And I'm going to have my finger on the fast forward button. So, you know, stay with us. Hang in there. But the other caution that I need to give throughout this series of Joseph is that a lot of what happens is absolutely not appropriate behavior. And for anyone under the age of 98, some of this should not be mentioned in front of them. So uh, there are some pretty tough things. We need to remember that Moses wrote the book of Genesis on behalf of a bunch of people who were refugees. They had left Egypt, and they were going to the promised land, and Moses needed to tell them the story about their past and and what God had planned for them in order to show them how God was preparing them for that promised land. They needed to know who they really were, And they needed to understand their destiny because they were not just any old people. They were God's chosen people. And that was really significant. So this summer, we're going to take a look at Joseph. So we're looking at his family tree. Joseph did not descend from a healthy family. They were good people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, his brother Esau, Joseph had 11 brothers and at least one sister. And Pastor Clark read to us from Genesis chapter 12, the promises that God gave. They were promised that they were going to be a people chosen by God to do great things in the future. Abraham, the father of Israel, was a great man of faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 11, which we chose as our verse for the week, tells us that god blessed abraham and gave him a child even though he was old even though his wife was barren god still blessed him because abraham believed the promises of god and responded so this is a great example of faith but abraham also on two occasions lied about his wife Sarah when they ran across a band of other people. And 25 years later, the son Isaac does exactly the same thing. And this is Abraham, Joseph's great grandfather. Isaac was born to Abraham and Sarah at a very late date. She was 90, he was 100. And after this, this mother had been barren for all these years. In fact, when God made the promise that they were going to raise up a nation, uh, they didn't understand, especially Sarah, didn't understand how God would do that. So she offered her handmaid to Abraham, sort of to help jumpstart God's promise in a different way. She offered Hagar, and Hagar gave birth to Ishmael. And as you can imagine... Much contention developed between Sarah and Hagar. Well, this child, now we're fast forwarding, this child, Isaac, grows up, finds a wife. Her name was Rebecca, and they have a set of twins that are born. Esau is the firstborn, and Jacob comes out hanging on to the, the heel of Esau, and he's the secondborn. And here's what God promised um, when he said to um Isaac and Rebekah about this child. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. Esau becomes the one who starts the line of Edom. Jacob, the younger son, is the one who is continuing the line for Israelites. God had promised that the younger one will be the one in whom the line of inheritance was going to be granted. That's Jacob, the younger son. By the way, the name Jacob, pretty appropriate, means trickster or supplanter. He tricked his older brother Jacob out of his birthright. That happened one day when when Esau was out hunting. And I don't know if he got up at 4 in the morning and came home at 11 at night or whether he was gone for a couple days. I don't know. But when he came home, <clears throat> he was extremely hungry, really famished. And they knew he was coming. And Rebecca, mom, made his favorite dish. I'm sure Philly cheesesteaks, all kinds of great stuff was in there. Made this wonderful dish and encouraged Jacob to um, to give this to Esau. And when he gave it to him, he held out long enough that Esau was willing to sell his birthright. The privilege of being the firstborn, he was willing to trade that off for food. And his thought was, if I don't eat, I'm going to die. So what goods the birthright to me? And so he did that. And for him, it was not a big deal. Yeah, there were honors involved in this, and there was financial gain. For sure, but there were also responsibilities that Esau really did not care about. He wasn't interested in it. That was unimportant to him, especially at that moment. Fast forward again, going toward the end of Isaac's life, and Rebecca then unveils the most deceptive plan to date. She, Jacob said to his father, "I am Esau, your firstborn." Here's what happened. When Jake, when Isaac was on his deathbed, Jacob posed as though he was Esau. He put on Esau's clothing. Uh, they got some animal furs and put them on his arm, put it on the back of his neck. Probably some goatskins is what it would have been. And tricked Isaac into thinking that Jacob was Esau so he could get the blessing. Jacob said, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. And Isaac did that. Isaac was Joseph's grandfather. Rebecca was Joseph's grandmother. In their culture, the person who was the firstborn, the one who had the birthright, would inherit two-thirds of the possessions and the other one would get one-third. Jacob tricked Esau out of his due inheritance, and Esau was livid with anger and began to plot his brother's death. Jacob fled to Haran, Haran to be with Rebekah's family and find a wife, and the tension between Jacob and Esau lasted for almost 40 years. Although they weren't together, Jacob was always living under the threat that Esau could show up someday and things would get really bad. Well, while they were uh, in transit, Jacob uh, was traveling and was sleeping one night, had his head on a nice soft rock. And this is when he had in his dream what most of us have called Uh, The vision of Jacob's ladder. He had this dream about um, angels coming up and down. Here's what it said He had a dream in which he saw a stairway. It was sort of steps that just kind of went up toward heaven, resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. So it was a stairway to heaven and the angels of God ascending and descending upon it. When he woke up, he, he said, surely the Lord is in this place. So he called this place Luz. A little bit later in, in history, when Christ was uh, starting his public ministry and Nathaniel was invited to come and meet Jesus, and he was very skeptical. And Jesus saw Nathaniel coming up and said, look, here comes a great Jewish Israelite, a faithful man of God who's good and faithful and true and right. Nathaniel's like, how do you know me? And Jesus said, well, while you were previously sitting by Jacob's well and thinking about the vision that Jacob had, I saw you there. And, And then he says, someday you're going to see angels ascending and descending upon me. It was an amazing experience for Nathaniel to think this God, Jesus, could read my mind and, and knows what I'm thinking and knows where I'm at at all times. Well, Jacob takes his family. They go back to the eastern people, back to where Laban lived. <clears throat> and when he gets there, Jacob meets a young lady named Rachel. Now, let me tell you about Rachel. Rachel, well, maybe we better not go there. She was really good looking. And Jacob is really a taken back By Rachel. He really likes this young lady. So he wants to go to Laban, her shepherd father, and he wants to marry her. He makes an offer. And Laban is okay with this because he doesn't have any sons, no inheritance. This is a way to take care of that. And so, yeah, he's going to do that. But there's a catch you have to work for me for seven years. Well, Rachel was good enough that that was worth the bargain. So he does. And now it's their wedding night. And unknown to poor Jacob, um, and you wonder what state was he in, but a switch takes place. And the next morning when Jacob wakes up, besides him is Leah, not Rachel, the oldest daughter is there. Interesting, doesn't it seem as though that deception really runs thick in this family. Jacob's own deceptions deceptions that he's shown in the past are now coming home to roost on him. It kind of illustrates what the scripture says in Galatians chapter 6, sooner or later, you will reap what you sow. And Jacob was experiencing that. Turns out that in the area of Nuzi, there was this local tradition that the younger daughter, Cannot marry before the oldest one does. So Laban suggests to Jacob, why don't you finish out this bridal week with Leah, and then eventually we'll give you Rachel, but you got to work seven more years. (laughs) Eventually, poor Jacob ends up with two wives and ultimately ends up working for Laban for 20 years. That is an amazing thing for this poor guy. The end result of this is many years of hurtful dispute and a painful jealousy between Leah and Rachel. This thing just gets nasty as time goes on. And I'm pretty sure Jacob and and Laban probably didn't get along real well either. And when you think about Jacob and his fear of his brother Esau coming any day now to to retribute what happened between them, this is just a tough way to go through life. Eventually Esau comes back looking for <clears throat> for Jacob. And Jacob hears about it. And so he sends out gifts to him to meet him. And while Jacob is <clears throat> um just waiting and in hiding and in transit, Jacob has an experience where he literally wrestles. With God. He wrestles with God. In chapter 32, verses 22 through 32, it tells about this. And in there, it talks about how God realigned Jacob's faith. This is a turning point in this man's life. Verse 26 tells us that Jacob says to God, I am not going to let go of you without you giving me a blessing. You have to bless me. And so here's what God says to him in verse 28. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but it'll be Israel because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. This is an overcoming point for Jacob. He realigned his faith and to illustrate that for him, I think he realigned his hip too. And he threw it out of socket and the rest of his life, The rest of his life, Jacob had a very severe limp just to remind him about his encounter with God. Jacob's choices produced a really chaotic array of wives and concubines and children. And we don't excuse his lifestyle, but we do want to recognize that God is able to overrule even the errors of men in fulfilling God's ultimate purpose. When we come to chapter 30 and we look at at the children that Jacob had, here's how that went. And it's actually in this order from left to right by Leah. Leah gave birth to four sons for Jacob. They were Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah. And Rachel becomes jealous. And in chapter 30, verse one, she is so angry and so jealous that she literally says to Jacob, give me children or I die. I would rather die than go barren like this, but she was not able to produce children. So she offers her handmaid, Bilhah. And Bilhah gives birth to Dan and Naphtali. Well, now for some time period, um, Leah and Jacob were not cohabitating anymore. And Leah was unable to give birth. So she offers her handmaid, Zilpah. And Zilpah gives birth to Gad and Asher. And then uh, there is a day, and this is recorded in chapter 30, about verse 15, where uh, Reuben is out and he runs across a supply of mandrakes. That's great news, mandrakes. Mandrakes were sort of like an, a very, very sweet apple. But in their culture, they believed that it helped make people fertile. So Reuben gets this and brings it back to Leah because he wants her uh, you know, to be blessed like this. And he knows of all. He's the firstborn. He's the oldest. He knows what's going on here. And he offers it to her. But Rachel finds out. And Rachel wants in on the mandrakes. And there's no way Leah's gonna give them to him, but through some negotiations, Rachel finally says, Tell you what, you give me the Mantrakes, I'll let you have Jacob for a night. Good deal. So, so Leah gets Jacob for the night, and guess what happens? <laughs> of course. She gets pregnant. She gets pregnant, and she gives birth to Iskar. <clears throat> Ultimately, she gets pregnant again. Zebulun. She gets pregnant again, Dinah. Now, I think there may have been some other daughters, but Dinah is the only one mentioned. And that's not unusual in their culture. In the meantime, poor Rachel is really struggling. But God has mercy on Rachel. Some people believe that she learned her lesson and allowed God to have control of the whole situation. Verse 22 of Genesis 30 says, God remembered and listened and opened her womb. And she gives birth to Joseph, Joseph. Ultimately, she gives birth to Benjamin as well a few years later on. Well, as a family, Jacob grabs the kids and his wife and wives and takes off and leaves Laban. And in the process, Rachel steals some of the idols of Laban's. And uh, we don't know what the purpose of that was, but still shows you not everything is right with these people. There's still a lot of dysfunction. Laban chases them down, runs across them. They have some negotiation talk. Laban finally decides it's fine. He lets them go. <clears throat> a little bit later, we learn that um, Esau and Jacob do reconcile. We don't know a whole lot about that, but they They do somehow get together, and we believe that they probably got along civilly because when it came time to the death of Isaac, the scriptures tell us that both Esau and Jacob were involved in the burial and the funeral activities around that. I want to take you to a really bad moment in chapter 34. Genesis chapter 34, Dinah is now probably about 15 or 16 years old. And they're in an area, and Shechem, a young man, meets Dinah, really likes her. And unfortunately, a rape takes place, and uh, it's not a good situation. Shechem ultimately wants to marry Dinah, and so he goes to Jacob about that. But the brothers, and there, remember, there's at that point, there's probably ten brothers. Uh, of Dinah, they're not real happy about what happened here. Jacob seems to be really doing nothing. He does nothing about the Shechem and Dinah situation. And so Simeon and Levi, sons number two and three, and yes, this is Levi who becomes the head of the priesthood for all those generations of Israel. Simeon and Levi are just furious about this. So they go to Shechem and the people of the town, the men of the town, and they form a treaty, a peace treaty between them. But in this peace treaty, part of the stipulation is for the men in this town are to all be circumcised. And they all agree. So they do that. On day three, after the circumcision, when the men are feverish and in in a disabled situation, Simeon and Levi and some of the brothers go in and they slaughter and kill all of them, kill them all. Jacob does nothing again. Interesting. Rape, treachery, massacre. Now, here's a quote that Chuck Swindoll gave, and I think that the book he wrote it was about 10 years ago, but he's writing about Dinah and the rape and, and then the murder of all these men, the massacre, and how Jacob had done nothing. But I think it's pretty telling about our own culture and how things are handled. Here's what Chuck Swindoll said. And he didn't write this today, honest. He said, when leaders fail to act decisively and wisely in the face of evil, the immature may act in dishonor, seeking just li- justice unjustly. Wow, that's pretty powerful. When things are not handled right at the beginning, those who maybe don't have total control of themselves will act in a very dishonorable way, and they'll try to get justice, but they do it in the wrong manners. That's pretty telling. These young men were surrounded by family dysfunction and distress, that's what they knew and it grew they grew to have just a plethora of problems, personal problems in themselves, character flaws. These men were not known as outstanding young citizens of the Canaanite community <laughs> and it doesn't end here. it gets worse in the weeks to come. We'll see. But let's remember, too, Joseph was not above reproach as well. Although he was head and shoulders above his brothers as far as moral terms and spiritual qualities. But still, he had some faults. Looking back to uh, this <clears throat> situation and looking back over to generations, Dr. John Davis wrote this in his commentary. What appears on the surface To be a series of accidents and failures and deceptions turn out in the long run to be God's providential working, which includes human frailty as well as strength. What Dr. Davis is saying there is when you look back over all these horrible situations and bad behavior, God's able to overrule that and even use people's weaknesses as well as their strengths. God overruled. Genesis 35 will will tell us that Jacob goes back to Bethel and worships God. Isaac died. Rachel will die in childbirth with Benjamin. So let's look at some of the observations that we can make from from the life background of Joseph. Joseph. The Bible is honest about its heroes. God is very transparent about them. If you were to read other ancient literature, non-biblical literature, writing about their local heroes, you would think they were gods, the way they describe them. Not a flaw, supernatural kind of activities by them, but not so with the scriptures. God is very honest, God is very transparent, and that's part of the reason why we know that this is inspired by God, because he is honest and transparent. It's a proof of inspiration. But here's another thought, too. <clears throat> Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 about the reasons why God's telling us all the dirt and the good stuff as well is because now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts On evil things as they did, as they did. And then in verse 11, these things happened to us as examples and were written down as warnings for us. All of this was recorded for us, not so that we can see the gory details. They had warts and everything as well. But these were examples to keep us from having evil things in our hearts. They're examples to warn us about the dangers of life when we make horrible decisions and terrible actions. So the applications for you and I are pretty simple. Number one is it's so easy to rationalize our present behavior by blaming the past, blaming our parents, blaming our parental and family influences. We may say things like, Well, my bad attitude and actions is because you never hugged me, or you didn't come to my school concerts, or you never said I love you. Those may explain how we got to be who we are, but they should not be excuses for our behavior today. And then more important than that is God's marvelous grace. How God can overcome all of this in our lives he provides uh, both an earthly and a heavenly plan for our lives he rules and he overrules abraham isaac and jacob yeah there's a lot of really bad stuff and we ran through all that but god's grace and his power in overcoming that and bring a lot of good this all started with abraham whom God promised a great inheritance. There were a lot of human mess-ups along the way, but God still overruled so that he brought them to where he wanted them to be. And it was only by his grace and his mercy that they had any relationship to this holy God at all. Joseph lived in the midst of a family dominated by lying, hatred, violence, deceit, immorality, and a lot of manipulation. He had an absolute built-in guaranteed excuse. Yet, as we're going to see in the weeks to come, he overcame all of that, even in the worst of circumstances. And the good news is our God is the same yesterday and today and forever. And he can overcome whatever circumstances you face in your life and can build in you a life of grace, mercy, and peace. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, thank you so much for showing us backgrounds of people. We have backgrounds in our lives. We have families and communities and churches that have poured into us. And so much of that you have used as good. Some of that uh, we can't talk about in public. Some of it is embarrassing or hurtful to us. And um, and yet you can overcome, you can overrule all of that. I pray, Lord, that in our lives, you will build on the good, build on what we have that is strong and stable and right and good, and that you would overrule the bad, help heal us, help move us forward, help us to become who you want us to be. Take those hindrances, those obstacles out of our past. Let them be an explanation, but not an excuse so that we can today know Christ, know Christ who is Savior, who is Lord, and who wants to speak into our lives and strengthen us. Help us to live for him today. Help us to bring glory to him alone. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Ritman Grace Podcast. If you have questions or would like to know more about our church, please visit www.ritmangrace.org or email us at ritmangbc at aol.com.